This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Elwood Jones of From the Depths of DVD Hell. And joining me, of course, from Guerrilla Ramblings and Easting Kicks is my co-host, Stephen. Hello, thanks for having me again. Uh, on tonight's show, we are going to be looking at Peking Opera Blues. Uh, Stephen is going to be taking us on a jaunt around Asian cinema as he shares with us his key late leading ladies of Asian cinema, as well as uh, the fact that we're also going to be looking at some of the aspects of Asian cinema which have obviously been holding our attention since the last show. First off, though, most uh, noteworthy, we have to obviously say uh, say a big thank you to that moment in dot uh, com, who have in fact picked up this show, and we are now a proud member of the that moment in dot com podcast network. So you will now be able to find our complete back catalogue as well as all new episodes at that moment in dot com. Other than that, the feeds will all stay the same, so you'll still be able to. Sub- yeah, any of your subscriptions you've got set up through Podomatic and iTunes will still remain the same, so you won't have to worry about that. But you also have the option to subscribe through thatmomentin.com as well. But we're both very excited to be able to be part of thatmomentin.com and um, certainly one of the founding members of their podcast network. If you uh, obviously want to check out the network, make sure you do. It's uh, at thatmomentin.com. Uh, at the moment, with us ourselves, you've got Cinema Recall, which is hosted by The Vern or The Vern's Video Vortex, which is looking at key films and directors. They've just done an episode as of the time of recording on Luke Besson and The Fifth Element. So some really great shows uh, coming up there, and we uh, hope to be joined by uh, some more shows in the network in the coming months. But obviously back to our show this evening we're obviously since the last show there's been a lot of exciting developments in the world of asian cinema most noteworthy is the announcement from tom mez that he is going to be releasing a new book called unchained melody the films of miko keje and this both myself and Stephen were very excited about because we're both i'm right in saying we're both fans of tom mez's writing uh because he obviously owns the site Midnight Eye he's done a number of commentaries as well as a number of great books including Iron Man the Cinema Shinja Tosukumoto as well as Agitator the Cinema of Takashi Miike and uh, the Midnight Guy uh, Midnight Eye a guide to new Japanese film as well but uh, Stephen I mean I'm right in saying you're a fan as well of Tomez Oh, absolutely. I mean, along with people like Bay Logan, Tom Mez is one of the uh, one of the leading lights in in, in appreciating and um, contributing to their love of Asian cinema around the world. Um, you, you're right. You know, his his work on Takashi Mike is uh, is, is is probably required reading. Um, and any time he contributes to a DVD or, or to a website it's always a good thing so i'm really looking forward to this this new book yeah i mean i would 
was hoping, I think like a lot of people were, that his next book would be a follow-up to Agitator, because obviously with Agitator he essentially covers the early and outlaw period for Takashi Miike's work, but obviously with Miike churning out as many films as he does, normally around seven or eight films a year, it's a bit of a job to obviously keep up with his book, so you would have expected by now, since that book was released back in 2006, that we would have seen a follow-up volume, and all we've seen as such was um, his coffee table book, Reagitate, to a decade of writer on Takashi Miike, which perhaps wasn't the volume we wanted uh, on the subject, so I know uh, I'm excited for this new book, which is obviously available to pre-order both through Arrow Books. Um, Arrow Film have gone into the book industry now, uh, much like Fab Press, and have uh, started producing books on cult cinema. This obviously being the second book to come out through their publishing line. The book is also available through Amazon. It was supposed to be out at the end of last month, but it has now been pushed to the length of September. So if you currently don't have the funds to hand for it, then you do have a little more time to obviously get the funds together and get that pre-ordered. So, But, I mean, obviously since the last book, I mean, what's been holding your attention, uh, Stephen, obviously in the world of Asian cinema? Well, in the world of Asian cinema, there's been a couple of things. So, And you'll be very glad to know I've actually made a start on my Dead or Alive trilogy. And so I've, I've now finally, after all these years, finally seen Talking of Takashi Mike, the first Dead or Alive film, and had my mind blown, <laughs> both by the quite amazing opening sequence, which is, at the moment, to my mind, one of Mikey's greatest moments uh, as, as a film director and that ending i'm not going to spoil it but wow what a, <laughs> what a what a crazy thing that encapsulates everything we love about mikey i guess oh definitely um i don't know if you felt the same but when i watched dead or alive i feel like it's the asian version of heat yeah i can a- absolutely see that um in it, it but that 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 opening sequence the energy in it and and the fact that everything that you see in that opening five six seven minutes yeah is absolutely relevant to the plot moving forward i had to go back literally go back and watch it again after finishing the film and that rarely happens to me you know normally i'd like you know leave it a couple of days or something like that but i literally just press play again because I was blown away because quite often Mikey can be guilty of not being a huge stylist or with, with, with the camera. Quite a lot of his films are quite you know, can be accused of being a bit point and shoot, which comes from his you know his V Cinema days, comes from the sheer number of films he sometimes makes of a year. So it, you don't often get the style with it, but that's just amazing. So um, I'll watch the next two in the next couple of months probably, but I need a bit of a rest after that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Dead or Alive is a real high point of his outlaw um, period of filmmaking. I mean, the fact that he he has his two lead actors counting down to obviously the chaos that he's going to unleash, and yes, it has some rather extreme moments, which let's say let's not say we're just not going to spoil, um, and just for questions of taste on this particular podcast. Um, but I mean, it's got Ricky uh, Takauchi and Show. Ekawa, um, as your two leads, you've got like this Yakuza boss uh, going up against this 
determined detective uh detective uh joyama who is like determined to take him down like regardless of like how it affects their family his family life and anything else it's just like these two characters they're both in like the top of their field and they're determined that one of them's going to take the other down um and in the middle of this you've obviously got this gang war between the triads and the yakuza happening in the background and it's all these different elements that make it such a an exciting film and I f- think when we talk about the, about the outlaw period, I think between this and Rainy Dog, those are the two that I always cite as being the entry point into this era for Mikey's filmmaking. Um, and I think perhaps to an extent it's overshadowed his films. The fact that it's meant that a lot of his fans who sort of joined him sort of like in the late 90s when Asian Cinema was getting this second boom felt kind of disappointed when he did like free extremes and started moving away from the extreme material and started doing lighter stuff such as um ace attorney for example or yataman which is a shame actually because i really like those like that light affair i think he's got a, mm. I, think he, I think he's one of the few directors who can take let's say manga adaptations or game adaptations ace attorney is a, is a is a game boy game adaptation let's not forget about that and he makes it into something fun utterly respectful of its source material but you don't need to know about it at the same time I mean, yataman he takes sort of japanese saturday morning live action kids fair and turns it into something interesting and something you know it's bright and colorful in the same way a little subversive at other times as well so i i do sometimes think some of his more modern work is possibly under uh, underappreciated cool um was there anything else was it just uh well there was no there was actually so i also got hold of um that there was a film eight years ago a film came out called crush and blush by a female korean director called lee kyung mi and she hasn't done anything for eight years crush and blush is a is a lovely little comedy drama that's a little bit dark then last year i guess it was now she came out with a a political thriller called the truth beneath although i think she actually made it a couple of years earlier and it stars sonny jim who's one of those faces of korean cinema she 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 made her debut in a or her most well-known role is um in a film called the classic which is by the director of my sassy girl and, and things like that but she's now pretty much sort of alternates between dramas and and big summer blockbusters um that are fairly rubbish really (laughs) (laughs) but this is just amazing it it starts off as a political thriller with very prescient um stuff going on about the modern situation in south korean uh, politics and turns into something else completely again i don't want to spoil it i know it's been shown at festivals and things like that i don't know if it will get a release over here i doubt it but it's a really special film that starts as one thing the political thriller and ends up into a, a dissection of a mother's love for her child and it's um yeah quite wonderful great um for myself, it's obviously been a very exciting uh, month since the last recording. Uh, most excitingly is the fact that the channel Viceland have decided that they're going to pick up the anime gauntlet and have started adding anime to their schedule. So we've started, they started uh, off with the classic Cowboy Bebop um, as well as Eureka 7. They have since added to this roster of anime titles by adding Tokyo Ghoul. 
as well as Samurai Shampoo um, to the roster. And it's really nice to see Viceland picking up and doing these midnight screenings of anime. Because, especially for myself, it very much feels like a throwback to the old days of like Channel 4 when they used to do the late night showings of things like Devilman and they used to show late night anime. Um, and it's great the fact that we obviously have this now being replicated and having a fairly mainstream channel um, obviously giving anime a place outside of obviously the the streaming services that you obviously have through like Netflix and Amazon and Crunchyroll. So to have it actually back on the screen and having titles such as Cowboy Bebop um, leading the sort of charge here has been absolutely fantastic. And Cowboy Bebop is such a great entry title if you're new to anime. It's so great the fact that they've chose to do it because it's so fast-paced, it's funny, there's lots of action, and it's got a jazz soundtrack to it as well, which makes it really accessible. And the fact that they've been showing the dub rather than the sub, um, again, makes it a little less daunting for those obviously not... uh, too familiar with the anime sourcing and obviously from there they can go on to try something a little more challenging maybe something like attack on titan which uh is still holding my attention i've got like eight more episodes to go and i'm still at the point where i don't want it to end uh the second season has been just as enjoyable as the first and i am determined that i will get Stephen hooked on anime one way or another by the time we finish this show so yeah, you you really are. Although, I mean, I guess the most important thing is is that it's it's actually got a place and that something is showing it because it just seems to be a huge hole because manga and anime are incredibly popular. You know, you go to any bookshop, go to any video store, they have huge sections for this media, the sort of the Japanese entertainment media, but it it just seems to be it just seems to be an easy win for someone like Netflix or something like that to put yeah. put something up there, and it just doesn't seem to happen. So it's good to know that Viceland have, have taken up the uh, the opportunity. Yeah, and it's really sort of tying into the model that they've been doing. I mean, they've been picking up a lot of niche sort of indie uh, comedies, such as like Son of Zorn, uh, Nirvana the Band, the show, and this sort of fits perfectly into the model that they've created for themselves on that channel. I mean, they've had sort of uh, very doc- a lot of documentaries based on social social subgroups and sort of society in general, and they've been sort of combining it with these sort of cult items. And obviously, this new anime block is uh, it's been a really great addition to it. And I've been really happy to obviously see them expand upon it and not just make it like this passing fling like we often see with like film four when they do the shell brother season we get like five movies and then we get about seven months before we get another season so um i'm always happy to see see another aspect of asian culture um and and cinema obviously being given um a decent slot and a decent presence on uh to the mainstream audience can obviously access so but um, obviously tonight we are talking about Peking Opera Blues. Now this is a film obviously noteworthy for its three late leading ladies. Uh, one of my favourite aspects of Asian cinema is the fact that we have so many films with strong female leads and this film is another exa- classic example of a heroic trio of kick-ass ladies. I mean in this case we got Bridget, uh, we got Bridget Lynn leading up the um, action. She's obviously joined by Sheree Chung and Sally Yip. And this obviously got us thinking, I mean, who are the key ladies of Asian cinema? So we've, uh, Stephen's obviously been compiling his list of uh, who we would consider his top uh, ladies of Asian cinema. So, I mean, Stephen, who 
should we be looking at when we think of these key ladies of uh, Asian cinema? Okay, well, I'll, I'll just say we could do podcasts on this for the next 200 years and I could pick a different list every time. And I suspect this is something we may come back to. But what I've done, I've picked six or seven names from various ages, various eras of Asian cinema, of cinema and from various nationalities. Um, so I'll, shall I just go through my list yep, and yep. tell you tell you why, and then you can argue and tell me anyone I've missed out. Okay. So what I think I'll start with, I'll start with Bridget Lynn as she's in today's film. Um, she is an icon. She's one of the icons of Asian cinema from her early days as a young beauty in Taiwanese romance and period films to her integral part in the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, the, the 80s, the early 90s, up right up until her final performance, which we talked about last time in Chunking Express. She's a visually striking woman. Um, don't just think she's famous for cross-dressing roles like um like in swordsman 2 and and and, and to a degree tonight's film um she's she, she she she's a very versatile actress but you'll always know she's there if you want to look at some key texts you can go back to her um performance in dream of the red chamber which is a, a classic chinese novel a taiwanese version of that she was in she was also in jackie chan's police story um peking opera blues which we're talking about tonight swordsman 2 and of course she was the original bride with the white hair yeah i mean that was obviously my first entry point into the cinema of bridget lynn i mean when you obviously had a bride with white hair and i I think it was like Verbico. It was like some extreme label that got hold of those titles because they also brought out uh, the first Baby Cart in Peril, well, the combination film, um, Shogun Assassin. And they they had um, Bride with White Hair 1 and 2 on the same label. So those were uh, absolutely fantastic uh, introductions to this character. And obviously, I didn't think at the time she would... It was just all the sort of films that she appeared in. But, yeah, as we mentioned already, she's appeared in some classy fare as well. Um, not to mention, I mean, Chunking Express, which we looked on the previous episode, where she's there with... The, she's got that iconic image of the film. She's there with the blonde wig, and she's essentially been playing the Asian Greta Garbo. Um, but, no, it's always exciting to see Bridget Lynn. If I see she's in a film, then I always have to check it out, regardless yeah absolutely she 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 she's up there on the pedestal of her own certainly in in sort of chinese cinema um i'll add another name similar name another taiwanese actress who possibly is more famous for her work in hong kong which would be joey wong or joey wang sometimes you'll find it written because it's the same name in in mandarin and <laughs> and cantonese um she's one of the great beauties of um asian cinema most famous for playing a willowy ghost um uh, let's just think about a chinese ghost story the whole trilogy but obviously the first film she's most famous for but you'll also see her popping up in places like jackie chan's city hunter which is a crazy manga inspired film where she she stars in and um also king who's painted skim where she plays one of the uh one of the uh the beauties there um She's probably not as well known outside Asia as, say, Bridget Lim might be. But if you check out, um, uh, there's a very excellent 
Taiwanese film by Giddens Co called You Are the Apple of My Eye, which came out a few years ago. She's the face on all the posters of the young boys back in 1980s Taiwan. She's the poster girl of Taiwan. So, um, yeah, and a, a face you'll see around a lot, especially when you look at the sort of golden age of Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, definitely some key tiles there. I mean, certainly Chinese Ghost Story 2 is probably my favourite of the trilogy. Um, I think it's a lot more fun, a lot more fancy elements. And City Hunter is probably one of the most underrated of the uh, Jackie Chan films, especially of the golden period of Jackie Chan movies. And I enjoy it just for the fact it has a homage to uh, Street Fighter 2 in it, where you have Jackie Chan dressed as Chung Li, uh, taking on a guy dressed as Ken, and they do like the spinning bear kick and the hurricane kick and it's so absolutely stupid but it's just a lot of fun at the same time even though it is essentially just uh, an animated an anime or manga adaptation um but um no i think city hunter is very underrated and and again she's very good in it as well okay so i'm i'm two for two so far um i'm pretty certain i'm going to have a success with this one when i talk about maggie chung maniok um there is another maggie chung who's very famous in in hong kong tv which makes sometimes gets confusing so she started off as a as a, as a beauty queen she's a runner-up in miss hong kong she was a miss world semi-finalist um but she became an actress of i would say of the highest standing you can go and check out her early fun roles again in police story alongside bridget lynn and jackie jan um i know another favorite of yours is heroic trio which which is um which is another huge amount of fun which i suspect we might come back to on this podcast at a future date and um new dragon gate in um and then she grows as an actress phenomenally into probably you want to look at something like uh, center stage or in the mood for love one car wise in mood for love which is probably one of the most iconic visuals of an asian actress you'll you'll ever find and then she married a a french film director oliver assayas and she made the rather interesting and uh, Irma Vep, and then the award-winning Clean, which I think was the last thing she ever did formally. But you know, she, she's she's worked in 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 both within Hong Kong cinema, French cinema, and English language cinema, and she's to my mind probably the finest Chinese actress ever. I'm not going to disagree with you. Maggie Chung is fantastic. Uh, whether you're looking at like those early Hong Kong years when she's doing things like Drag from Russia, uh, Police Story 3, Supercop, um, Heroic Trio especially, uh, which obviously plays up her London upbringing by having her whistling London Bridges falling down as she plays the bounty hunter uh, character of the trio. And let's not forget, Heroic Trio also saw her sign alongside um, future Bond girl at the time, uh, Michelle Yeoh who plays the Invisible Girl, and uh, Nita Mew, who plays the Wonder Woman. Not the Wonder Woman of DC, but a different Wonder Woman. Um, then we obviously get into the later years, and as you said, I mean, she starts doing things like In the Mood for Love, which I can only urge anyone who likes Asian cinema to definitely w- look at. And even though it's a film which is held in such high regard, um, it's a still a very accessible film. It's not the highbrow, complex film that it's prey the amount of praise it receives would have you believe it is and i think the less said about her deleted scene in glorious bastards pretty the better really because i think that's kind of still a sore point for many people 
it certainly is for me now i want i could now keep going on in chinese actresses and um, we could talk about the mainland's four dan actresses um zhu jing li zhu zhan zhao wei and zhang ji he who or people have various knowledge of but i think we might talk about them another time and what i thought i would do is just have a little look at some other territories so if we go to japan one of my favorites is a quirky little actress called yuri ueno um now yuri ueno isn't going to be in any films you can probably get over here maybe one or two um but she's very different very quirky um has that sort of pixie girl look about her but she also does some utterly mental stuff um sort of her key works would be something like uh, turtles are surprisingly fast swimmers the best time machine uh, time travel movie ever which no one's ever seen called summer time machine blues and her debut part in the brilliant swing girls which um i i highly recommend anyone to find will make you fall in love with her yep um Another fine choice. I mean, I've only obviously seen her in Tells the Surprise New Fast Swimmers, which is available through Third Window Films at the moment over here in the UK. Um, I'm not sure what the release uh, label is for abroad, but uh, no, I mean, she's definitely an actress I want to see more of. Swing Girls is certainly on my list of films, but then again, it's quite an extensive list of films I still have to watch. So uh, you obviously have to excuse me the fact that I've not seen it, but. Uh, I can't help but feel that we will be looking at Swing Girls in a future episode, so uh, keep an eye out for that one. Oh, we certainly will be. Okay, and now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over Japan now and go. My final two choices are going to come from South Korea, um, and we haven't actually talked about any South Korean films really yet on this podcast. That's something we'll sort out fairly soon. So, first off, we'll talk about Jeon Do Yeon. Um, she's sort of a, a proper actress <laughs> she's not one that comes from uh, unfortunately in south korea the the career path often starts in pop music then into dramas and then maybe you'll get onto screen and and frankly talent is is disposable so whilst there are some big names um and one of them again i'll talk about as my second choice from south korea you don't get a lot of actresses really um certainly ones that are over 30 now Dion is something different she's south korea's finest actress or modern day actress period um her debut i think was in a film called the contact which is a which is a classic uh, sort of romantic melodrama of korean cinema her breakout role was probably the harmonium in my memory which is another fantastic film her signature role would be in Secret Sunshine, where she became the first Asian actress to win Best Actress at Cannes. And, but she can do, she's so versatile, she can do light fare, such as the, the, the fun thriller Countdown, and risque stuff, like the remake of The Housemaid. Um, she will be a seal of quality for any Korean film you pick up with her name in. She'll raise even the most average material, but usually she picks really good material. Yeah, I think we've discussed uh, off air about The Housemaid before and the fact that the original is a film really worth checking out. I know it's one of Martin Scorsese's favourite films and frustratingly it's been one of those films which will turn up occasionally on TV or it turn up on a streaming service like Mumbai and it's still not available anywhere to uh, get hold of. And it's still frustrating because it is such a a great uh, little pot boiler. 
But uh, the remake I've yet to see, and I'm kind of in two minds because obviously when it comes to remakes, it's always a bit hit and miss whether they're going to work or not, whether they're going to be able to uh, be too referential to the source material. But I mean, do you have you seen the remake? I mean, what what do you say is the the verdict on that one? I actually think it's a really good remake. Um, it's a much more sexualized film. Um, which is actually quite rare in Korean cinema. They they can still be fairly prudish around sex. Um, Obviously, things like The Handmaiden that that have come out recently, which are a bit more in your face about it, but it's still quite rare. It's a sensual, sexual film. Um, The basic story remains the same, but it's much more, obviously, it's in (laughs) colour, which is the main difference. (laughs) But but it's it's a modern retelling of it, but it's a perfectly valid remake. I'm not the sort of person who, who... is always the biggest fan of remakes for remakes sakes but if you update it and you 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 add a bit of modernity to it it's worthwhile and she's brilliant in it um and it's well worth well worth watching okay and my final choice for tonight but like i say i suspect we'll be coming back here again is jun ji hyun um she might you might know her as jiana jun she had a bit of an english name now forget about anything she's done in western cinema like the forgettable blood the last vampire and the really disappointing snowflower and the secret fam but think about her in two parts of her career her movies were at the forefront of hallyu which that the korean wave this 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 period where korean entertainment music television shows and um movies suddenly became popular not only in asia but in north america in europe and um if i tell you her film two of her films were my sassy girl and il mare you will know that you know she, she, she she's she's the key face of of that movement um nowadays she tends to appear in in big summer blockbusters like the thieves the berlin file and assassination but she's managed to go back to her roots and star in a Korean drama called My Love from Another Star, which was absolute sensation two or three years ago across Asia. If you met anyone Asian from not just Korea, but Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, they will have been watching My Love from Another Star. So even now she's in her mid to late 30s, she's still box office gold. And, and she's a unique looking lady, but she's actually a really good actress as well. Cool. Uh, yeah, I've uh, definitely covered the wide spectrum there of uh, Asian leading ladies. Um, certainly, the only one that I would always want to add to that list would just be Michelle Yeoh, just because I feel that Michelle Yeoh is really one of the most fantastic clean ladies of uh, Asian cinema. The fact that she was doing her own stunt work when you look at films such as like Supercop Free, where she's um, sorry supercop uh police story free where she does the motorcycle jump onto the train um and the fact that we have films from her such as uh magnificent warriors before she took her retirement when she got married only to for the marriage to eventually fail much to i think much the benefit of asian cinema fans it meant that she obviously then came back as an actress and started doing things such as like heroic trio executioners before moving on to doing western uh cinema such as like tomorrow never dies and even like moving more away from doing like the hong kong action cinema and doing more dramatic roles and we see her turning up now in surprising places like lou besson's the lady um 
and uh, sci-fi fair like uh, Sunshine. So it's always interesting to see where Michelle Yeoh is going to turn up next, but I'm always happy when she does. Uh, she even makes an end credit scene in Guardians of the Galaxy too, right? I mean, yeah, she's she was she was on. She's obviously on the on the bubbling under list. I, I didn't want to miss her out, so I thank you for bringing her up. I mean, she's a she's an absolute icon as well from Malaysia originally. Another one that I think went down the Miss World route to start with, but she's far more than that. And like you say, she, she's she's both a genuine action star which is probably I didn't cover so much in this list, and a serious actress as well, um, and a Bond girl. So what more could you want? Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break there, and uh, when we return, we're going to be looking at our feature film this evening, Peking Opera Blues. Listen to The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes, and you can hear me, Jason Soto, use the F word. French? No. Fudge? Uh, sort of, but no. Frank? No. Fridge? No. Faruka Balk? What? what? No. Farfid Nugan? Jeez, no. Alright, what F word could you possibly be talking about? I'm talking about f- in the layer of the unwanted. Covering the movies you don't want to see and more on iTunes. And we're back. Uh, we're now obviously looking at our feature film for this evening, which is 1986 Peking Opera Blues, directed by Sue Hawk. Now, this is a film which, as we mentioned already, it stars a trio of fantastic Asian leading ladies. And heading up the cast, we obviously have the iconic Bridget Lin. Uh, she's joined by Sally Yu, as well as Sheree Chung. And the film itself, it's set in 1911 when the Chinese Revolution overthrew the monarchy and established a republic and in this chaos that's happening um, the general's daughter who played by Bridget Lin is trying to steal some important documents from her father's safe in order to help out the local guerrillas who are fighting for the republic and her thrown into her exploits um, between these two characters here because we obviously have Bridget Lin who's the plays Cho, Cho Yan, she's the daughter of uh, of, of General Chow, played by, here by Kenneth Tusang and she's working with the daughter of the local Chinese opera um, played uh, by Sai Ye and through into this we've also got the gold digging musician Hong here played by Sheree Shung who's finds herself caught up in the Peking Opera while trying to track down a box of jewellery that uh, she's been attempting to steal and this is a very unique film in the fact that it combines dramas elements of like romance and screwball comedy and slapstick and Hong Kong style action uh, there's so many different elements that are thrown into this melting pot and yet somehow it strangely works um this is a film that i ended up having to watch twice i think by the time we've watched this i've seen it about three times now and it it only rewards further viewing so if you don't get it the first time um and certainly if it sounds a little confusing when we're trying to explain it then we do um, apologize but it is a film that rewards uh repeated viewing but I mean, Stephen, this is obviously your choice. I mean, why is it about Peking Opera Blues that made it such an essential recommendation on your part? Okay, so for me, Peking Opera Blues 
embodies a period of cinema. It's 1986, Hong Kong film, by Choi Hark, as you say, at the peak of his powers. It's um, it's the fast pace, the complex storyline, the strong female characters, as you say. There's a little bit of history. There's a little bit of stuff about the Nat Lim for God's sake. Um, but it's a crazy romp. I mean, it doesn't slow down. It, every short, fast, snappy, it moves very quickly. Um, it's all Chinese opera side, but then there's just it just embodies a time and a place both in what it's just on the screen and when it's made that for me it's almost like a gateway piece of cinema yeah if you get this you're gonna get filmed in the next sort of 10 years after this in hong kong cinema because it's got that that energy at Hong cinema at it, in, during the golden age yeah it's i mean this is a very it's very much a really a comment on the director because He's always been such a fiercely independent director in, in his unique filmmaking style. I mean, it's easy to understand why people like Quentin Tarantino rave about his film so much. I mean, Tarantino has openly expressed his love of this film, even going as far to recommend it as a companion piece to uh, Chunking Express when he did the Rolling Thunder Pictures release of that film. Um, for myself, this film is... The fact it's headed up by Bridget Lynn, who once again is playing a very masculine sort of role. She's got the very uh, manly sort of short haircut here that we see in this film. Um, and she receives great support by uh, Sally Ye, who is obviously highlights the sexism within the Chinese uh, opera system in the fact that women weren't allowed to do Chinese opera. All the roles were played by men. And it was seen as a great shame on your opera house the fact that you had a woman playing a role in your opera. And it's kind of funny in the fact that we have all these female characters and they're more masculine than the men who are very feminine throughout the film. I mean, we obviously have the lead actor of this uh, opera troupe who is, I don't know, he's he's camp i don't know if he was supposed to be gay or not but at one point he gets a marriage proposal and it's unsure whether the person proposing to him knows he's actually a man or not it's one of the many fascinating elements of this film oh absolutely i mean um the 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 pc brigade might get a little upset at some of the campiness of some of the male actors. There's a little chorus of, of quite clearly, clearly homosexual men, um, but that it's all it's all done in great fun. But of course, you have this wonderful juxtaposition. You have Bridget Lynn's character who dresses very masculine. She's very much of the modern age. She, she's the she's about the introduction of foreign culture into into this sort of pre-revolutionary, post-revolutionary. 1910-ish China. She, she looks like a man. She dresses like a man, but she's very feminine, especially when she has a pajama party a bit later on in the film. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you have, um, as you say, the, the, the character in the Chinese opera where only men can play women. In fact, only men are allowed to watch, if, if I remember rightly. Um, and but she, you know, she wants nothing more than to be a woman playing a woman and then we have the the final character the sort of the gold digger um who's played by um she's a bit more like uh it's a bit more of a commentary on on some of the sort of 
obsession with material wealth that maybe some Chinese wouldn't be accused of. Um, so so it, it, it's this, this lovely mix-up of, of different looks at female power and lack of power in Chinese society, both then and now. Yeah, and the actual storyline of this this film, we have these different elements uh, floating around. We've obviously got the 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 rebellion who are secretly trying to overthrow this uh this this military regime that are, are coming in we obviously have that classic trait of uh hong kong cinema where we are introduced to one bad guy only for said bad guy to be replaced in the third act uh by supposedly the even more evil uh bad guy which we get uh happening once again here and this obviously being one of those rare occasions where we have a perfectly fine bad guy and he's uh, replaced by a bad guy who's pretty much on the same level, I would say. I don't say there's any, he's not any more evil or, or villainous than uh, the original villain that we had. I mean, he, had, he truly does have a fantastic dispatch sequence, which if I had seen it prior to uh, obviously doing our Deadpool draft off on the uh, MEDS showcase, that. I probably would have uh, listed it as what being one of my top uh, five movie deaths of all time. It's this absolutely fantastic way that he's uh, dispatched, where he's basically shot more times than I think I've seen anyone shot on film uh, before. It's he's turned into a human clay pigeon um, in the finale, which is I think it's worth watching alone for the the end finale of the film, where we obviously have our heroes and their almost flying for the air in this Wooster style chase sequence um, around the, the opera house is uh, is absolutely fantastic uh, end to this film but it's ironic really that the fact the elements of the film I didn't actually like were the actual Chinese opera parts which I found uh, the uh, a little catawally in places shall we say oh, that's, a, that's a shame but um, <clears throat> I, I can understand why although I don't think that there's too much Chinese opera stuff really going on here the other thing I like, like you say, it, start, it starts with bad guy number one, bad guy number two takes over, bad guy number two dispatched, bad guy number one. And actually, there's a third bad guy, isn't there? There's the head of the ticketing operation who's, who's also, um, who's also, but they're all men and they're all fairly mustachioed fellows, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> Face your head. It reminded me a lot of that film we watched a couple of episodes ago, Tears of the Black Tiger. Um, in terms of the look and the feel and the, and the, certainly the hair suitness of the men. Um, so there's a bit of a, a bit of a match there. And I do wonder if Tears of the Black Tiger was using this as a little bit of a, a little bit of a model for it. But even then, even the, even now, even with someone like the general Chow character, Kenneth Tang's character, who is Bridget Lin's father in this, there's a bit of tenderness between them, isn't there? I mean, this, he's not—he's not a twirly moustache villain. I mean, he, he acts like it to start with, but then there's a tenderness between the father and the daughter. You know, he may be a traitor to um, to China because he's—he's basically helping foreign interests eventually take over. But she doesn't want her father hurt, even though she knows the right thing to do is to protect her country. It's, it's just there's these sort of subtleties to it that. I think rise it above the normal fare because sometimes these things can get a bit jingoistic, can't they? Um, and, and I think I think Peking Opera Blues is far more complicated than that. Oh, definitely so. I mean, the fact that we have so many elements floating around in in, uh, 
in this in this film. I mean, perhaps we could uh, drop the gold digger character, um, but at the same time, she is kind of fun, and the fact that she joins this harem of women that the Gemmel has, um, and how she just constantly t- works into the plot because she's never really a member of any particular one group um, at any one time. She sort of finds herself thrown from one situation to the next, and it's all through circumstance that uh, she finds herself caught up in this this ongoing plot that's uh, that's uh, running throughout the film. And yeah, it's as I said, yeah, no, I, I love I, I love her character because her character is shameless, <laughs> and she's <laughs> and and but you know they don't paint her. At, you know, th- there's no point in the film where she really becomes a hero it's all by circumstance and it's all even up to the last minute it's led to a desire to have gold bars to, you know and to to better herself through financial reward to get out of the world that she's in you know she's she's playing music for peanuts yeah i think that's when she's introduced and so you have some sympathy with her she's got this opportunity to make some money she's thrown into this kind of revolutionary activity you're quite right she's never really part of it and she gets out of, at the end you know she, she, she's not she's not changed to a better person of it but she's a huge amount of fun um where where bridget lynn and cherry chung probably have much more um straightforward and serious storylines um without the shang hung character i think it, it, it just wouldn't be as much fun no we need her for the uh, to ma- to make up our ass kicking trio. Indeed, we do. Because uh, I think that's the thing with Hong Kong cinema. It's always better when you have a trio of ass kicking ladies than just the one. But well, um, you could have seven or eight, but three will do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now, in terms of the action scenes that we have uh, throughout the film, I mean, we have a little bit of uh, Hong Kong martial arts action in there. We have a lot of heroic gunplay, which really made some of the higher points of this film the fact that this is gunplay as done by whoever made the whoever directed the 18 because people are firing round after round no one's reloading no one is getting hit um but you've got all these bullets ricocheting everywhere and we've got characters doing these like waxer style moves where they're like uh jumping from banner to banner and it's it's just so I think it's some of my favourite moments of the film is when we're engaged in a heated shootout with someone. So, yeah. Although I will say, I mean, Hark is usually quite a good director of action. Um, this one is a little bit cheaty, isn't it? <laughs> because well, we we don't we don't we don't have any of the great action stars in this film. I don't think anyone in this film is famous for being a particularly strong action hero so it's all very quick cuts short scenes um it's it, it it's not quite as um uh, what's the word as balletic as maybe we might see in some other even of troy hark's films would you agree yeah it's i mean it's certainly there are elements of this film but at the same time it's not the same as if you like we're looking at like a john woo or a ringo lamb uh that sort of style of action it's very it works within the context of this film, but in terms of like action cinema, I mean, it could seem as being a little, perhaps a little more sloppy. It's still enjoyable to watch. It's not to take anything away from it, but uh, certainly this isn't a director 
working at his best for this particular aspect of the film. No, I just, I just, I do, I do feel it's a bit unlike. We we could point at some of his other work, Zoo Warriors and Once Upon a Time in China series, um, and we can see he's more than capable of directing a more bulletic kind of action whereas this one is, is punchy is quick it's, it's bang 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 it's almost paul greengrass yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways but which i think oh, i think it's just interesting it just shows there's, there's a flexibility to the guy um but it, it works in this film because it does not let up yeah from the opening scene until the very end bit of a downer scene at the end it's an exhausting nearly two hours um but thrilling all the way along yeah, and even though it's like two hours, I mean, it, it does absolutely fly by. And I think the fact there's so much happening in this film, um, and that we got the constant switches in style, and it just only sort of adds to this uh, this weird mixture that we have on. And I think, as you said, the ending is a bit of a down. I mean, it could be seen as being a down, especially as what we've been through to get to that point. Um, but at the same, I, I don't know how i feel in the well, ending well, I, f- I feel well, quite mixed it is because if you so so i guess the thing i didn't really mention is that this film is is, is based in a you know if if you know about your chinese history and you know about your peking opera there's lots of things that that maybe you and i are probably gonna miss out on because we're missing a lot of these visual cues so the, there's 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 a moment for example where it starts snowing uh, and apparently that is a sign of luck so uh, I think it's um, Bridget Lin and I think it's um, Cherry Chung. No, it's um, Salier's character sort of connect at that point. It starts knowing it's meant to show that it's an auspicious and lucky moment and it's taken straight from a, a Peking opera. Um, the whole thing, you know, people like uh, the, the, the women dressed as men, it's taken from stories like Hua Mulan and th- and, and, and so on and so forth which are, which are common themes so you and i probably missed that out in terms of the chinese history this was a period of time where the the the, the, the monarchy the king dynasty has fallen this is a country trying to find its feet in the world as a democracy what's going to happen in about 15 20 years time is we're going to get mao Zedong's communist revolution and the country's going to change forever so everything they've achieved in this film everything the whole success is actually going to fall apart and we have the characters at the end saying oh we're going to go do this i'm going to do that they don't actually go off and do things together and it's probably a a sort of a a meta criticism of china at the time so that's again this is depth to it but it's you know it's kind of downbeat and and i'm kind of used to my hong kong movies at this time sort of just suddenly ending you know usually the final blow is struck hurrah we're done and it goes the end and that's literally that's literally how these films tend to end whereas this one has this little kind of downbeat coda and like i say if you know your chinese history and you know what's actually going to happen it's kind of sad but i like it about this film because i guess that's why it's got blues in the title Uh, further watching, I mean, what would you want to pair this with? Uh, what would you say is be your companion piece to uh, Peking Opera Blues? Okay, so as usual, I'm going to pick a film 
from this director, Choi Hark. So I think I've said again and again, he, he's, he's, he's a major player in this era. So I could have gone for something like Zoo Warriors and the Magic Mountain. I could have gone for something in the Once Upon a Time in China series, although I think we'll probably talk about at least one of those films in a future podcast. He went off to America with John Woo and uh, at least another of, of, the, of this era's... Uh, did Vingo Lang go across to America? I can't remember. Yeah, I think he did. did. And, um, and yeah, Ringo Lamb went to do those questionable John <laughs> John Claude Van Damme movies. So he did. Well, uh, well, well. Uh, Troy Hart also did a questionable John Claude Van Damme. Movie. <laughs> Basically, his time in America was not successful, which is a shame because, in a way, he should have been, you know, over over in America in the late nineties, the highlight of action cinema. He should have been a huge success. It didn't work. Um, he made a few films that are really fairly unsuccessful like missing and things like time and tide and all about women which have their fans but they were they weren't up to this standard and then in 2010 he made a film called detective d and the mystery of the phantom flame and he pulls together people like um andy um andy lau and um big tony lung and creates this fantastic it's very CGI based um, Wusha movie that's the most fun that you will have had with a Choi Hark movie since Once Upon a Time in China 5. Um, it's a fabulous, glorious film. Um, the sequel, well, actually, it's a prequel, isn't a patch on it. But yes, absolutely. Detective Day, The Mystery of the Phantom Flame, or if you had to, his remake of Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, both of them are fantastic modern Hong Kong wuxia movies. Yeah, Detective D and The Mystery of the Phantom Flame. I was surprised about how much I actually really enjoyed this one. It's essentially Sherlock Holmes if Sherlock Holmes knew Kung Fu. Um, this film is also really interesting, the fact that it broke its own legs. What could have been essentially a fantastic little series of films? Um, much like the Heroic Trail films, which did the same thing with its sequel executioners um we essentially have an ending here which meant that we can't really go any further with the uh series and unsurprisingly they found a way to work around it by doing the prequel um with young detective d uh which i've yet to see but i'm kind of now a little more cautious after your your criticism of it there Stephen. but well it, it's it's fine if you like mark chow and angela baby who that'll mean something to people who watch modern Chinese cinema. It's absolutely fine. Although, apparently next year he is making a new Detective D film, so I will be interested to see how that comes out. Yeah. Um, I mean, the character of Detective D, though, as a, if you like the recent uh, the recent Sherlock Holmes movies, this is essentially the same, just obviously with, um, with a, a Chinese setting and the fact that it's got added bonus of martial arts, but the character Detective D is absolutely fantastic, and there's some really great set sequence scenes within uh, the film as well. So it's definitely one that's uh, worth checking out if uh, you haven't done already. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you've got Karina Lau, Li Bingbing, and Andy Lau, Tony Lung Cafe, as I say, um, and and it's just it's just a glorious thing, and more power to it. Yeah. 
Um, for myself, uh, still staying on the theme of uh, the Peking Opera, though, I'm going to go for the 1988 film Painted Faces, uh, starring Samuel Hung and directed by Alex Law. Now, this is a film which is based um, in part on Samuel Hung's training with the Chinese opera. Um, in particular, the training of the Seven Little Fortunes, which included not only Samuel Hung, but also Jackie Chan um, as well. And it focuses on the training that they had to go through, including some rather brutal disciplinary techniques. Um, this film uh sees someone hung playing um his mentor master yim ji yim jin yun um and it's a film which for one reason or another like many of the summer hung movies like peking uh uh like many of the uh, summer hung movies it's just never had the distribution it's really deserved so you can get hold of it uh through various various sources it is available in Perhaps more grainier cuts than it, a film uh, of this quality certainly deserves, but especially seeing as it saw Hung winning his second Hong Kong Film Award for Best Actor at the Eighth Hong Kong Film Awards. Um, this is a it's a really fantastic movie, even if it's a little difficult to watch in places. But uh, certainly, see some of Hung doing a more drama-driven role is always interesting to see, and uh, here it's absolutely fantastic and certainly well deserving of the praise he received for uh for this film no i'll definitely have to check that one out i haven't seen that and in fact again and to my shame i haven't seen a lot of sammo hung's films although he's been a key he was the action director on the detective d film funnily enough <laughs> um to join it all together but you know i i've, I've been far more worthy of his work either behind the scenes or as a guest star in in certain films so that I, th- I will try and track that one down and certainly give it a watch because it sounds fascinating. Um, on our next episode, we are going to be looking at a film which has recently been picked up for an American remake and it's going to be released through Netflix. So we're going to go back and look at the original Death Note. Um, and this is going to be, I believe it's a first time watch for yourself, Stephen? It absolutely is. I, I think I might have mentioned it in my cinema shame um, that I've never seen any of the Death Note movies. And as you say, it's coming to Netflix as, a, as an American remake. It's about time I uh, I sorted out so I understood what was going on, right? Yeah, I mean, Death Note is one of those films which has really become a cultural phenomenon, whether you're looking at it through both the manga or the anime uh, or just the films themselves. They've really spawn this whole cult following um with the film obviously being followed by several uh sequels um the fourth which is due to believe is uh, due to be released shortly um but we're obviously going to go back and look at the original 2006 live action version um and uh, obviously see uh get ourselves prepared for when the uh, we make obviously does uh, show up uh, on Netflix, which is going to be very soon. I believe it's at the end of August. Excellent. I um yeah, I better, I better get my Death Note watching sorted out. <laughs> Uh, in the meantime, if you, as I said, if you uh, haven't done it already, you can check out our back catalogue of episodes on thatmomentin.com, where we are obviously a proud member of the thatmomentin.com podcast network. Um, 
Stephen, if people obviously want to find more of your work, where can they find you? Well, you can find me at my own blog, although I haven't written very much very recently, at guelloramblings.wordpress.com. You'll have far more luck finding my work and other excellent stuff on Asian cinema at easternkicks.com. And if you want to get hold of me on, on the Twitter, you can find me at, at LPVO. Cool. And uh, as for myself, uh, not only am I doing more writing for thatmorning.com, you can find my blog from the Depths of DVD Hell, both on Facebook as well as from the Depths of DVD Hell.blogspot.co.uk. And I'm also on the Twitter, which is at Elwood underscore Jones. Um, as I said, uh, if you have a film that you would like to see us cover on a future episode, please do let us know in the comment section below. Uh, full links, of course, are available there as well for not only our letterbox list which uh, contains all the films that we've covered on the show to date um, as well as uh, the links to our various pages as well um, but as always I'd like to say thank you to my co-host Stephen for joining me for another episode pleasure as always and uh, this is Edward Jones uh, signing off for another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club <laughs>